0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Go to
1: the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell. I'm a cat of hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. the <laughs> I want you to get up right
2: now. Get up. Go to your windows, open them, and stick your head out. Gentlemen, we can't
1: fight in here. This is the war room. Hey, yes! Yes! Trip. open the award and may God have mercy on your soul
0: hello everyone and welcome to episode 7 of the neg's best film podcast I am your host Matty neggs and today I am going to be joined by Christian Chavez Christian and I are going to be talking about Richard Linklater's new film, Everybody Wants Some, and Jeff Nichols' new film, Midnight Special. Then, later on on the show, we're going to do away with Cinema Throwdown today, as I'm going to be joined by my friend James. He and I are going to be talking about the upcoming sixth season of HBO's Game of Thrones. This is quite a big deal, actually, as this is obviously a television show, not a film, but... We do think it is something that is cinematic and worth discussing here on the podcast, and that is why we are going to be previewing Season 6 as well as recapping Season 5 for you. Now, without any further ado, let's get to it, shall we?
2: Pay strict attention
1: to what I say, because I choose my words carefully, and I never repeat myself.
0: Alright everyone, this is Episode 7. I am your host, Matty Neggs, for the Neggs Best Film Podcast, and today... I am being joined by Christian Chavez. Christian, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. Thank you, Matt. All right, so Christian over here, he is at Chris Cinephile on Twitter. You could follow him on there. And just the other night, he and I were talking, and I can tell you right now, it is really, really hard to find people that have seen the two movies that we're going to be reviewing today. Those two movies are Everybody Wants Some and Midnight Special. But Christian came through for me in a very big way. I'm glad that he's here today. But let's just start off with the basics first. Christian, what have you been watching at home this week? You
2: know, this week I uh, I was watching Daredevil season two. Ah, oh, I gotta watch that. Everybody keeps telling me. You gotta like just just if you have to just like marathon season one, then get to season two. It's totally worth it. Uh, a lot of the things I wish uh, again some of the issues I have with it are just in general with the MCU uh, how they treat like certain like. Uh, you know, certain people of color, like Asian-Americans, for example, they mm. aren't treated as best, like just as fairly, as say, for example, like African-Americans or uh, the Irish, for example. Um, that was something I picked up on season two, but it's still really good. Check it out. Interesting enough, uh, it has almost the same plot as Batman versus Superman, just much better. Just totally much better. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, because of the Punisher and Daredevil based yeah, on the it,
0: trailers I've watched, you're telling me
2: yeah like uh you know, it's two different characters, two different morals, and they basically kind of do get out over like their ideologies. you know
0: it's so funny, it's been like a running joke on my show now because the last two uh episodes that I've been on, uh, I've had people say to me, you got to watch Daredevil season two and i've I've seen season <laughs> one, but this is the third time now that I'm being told I need to watch season two, and i man, listen, I'm busy i I, I don't know <laughs> what to tell you I, I'm a busy man. I bel- I believe it. I, I know I know what it's like to be a busy man as well. So I really really do want to watch it. I was a huge fan of season one. Charlie Cox is doing really fantastic work on that show. Oh, I definitely.
2: Thought, I thought the action choreography too was awesome. Like no one gives them enough props, and that's like kind of a backhand to the like to the choreographers, uh, the stunt choreographers to Daredevil, and they deserve like a round of applause throughout the entire show. I'm sure that they do.
0: I mean, I love the way that it's shot. It's got such a dark, shadowy vibe to it. It's violent. It explores very dark themes. It just, it seems to me like it's, they wanted to take a Marvel property, and do for it what Breaking Bad was to people, essentially. A, a dark, long-form series that you could binge and be engrossed in. And that's what I felt like when I watched the first season of Daredevil. And to hear all the great things about season two, it sounds like it expands even further.
2: Yeah, and it also it also has a lot of funny moments, too. Oh, it also has a heart, and that's something that I feel like uh, with comic book films that are trying to be dark and gritty, they forget that sometimes you need to be funny. Sometimes you need to have a heart and humanity, and basically kind of bring out the best in what people can be. I understand that you know if you're gonna go for that dark and like that dark edge sort of thing, then sure you know make your character your main character like. Uh, like as flat as a board and just uh, make sure that he's totally dark. But with Daredevil, you have characters who range in emotion. And that's something that I find unique in this particular sense.
0: So what you're basically were describing there was Batman versus Superman. Yes, but better. (laughs) (laughs) I I swear to God, I'm not going to let this one go. All the people out there that hate me for criticizing that film, hate on me as much as you want. That film has flaws and the fact that the filmmakers had to explain all these questions that they had thrown at them after the movie was released that isn't
2: even addressed nor answered in the film itself. That's a problem. That is a problem. I I did notice because uh, WB had released... Um, a deleted scene for oh, BVS, the Lex Luthor one. Yeah, the Lex Luthor one. I've heard and about this. I haven't yeah, watched it though. Basically, that scene alone could have fixed a lot of the problems from that movie. Which base, which to me means that you that three hour cut long R rated cut that's going to be released in July might actually be a better movie. Doesn't mean that it's going to be a good movie probably not i don't know i will keep an open mind when i'm watching that three-hour cut but so far what i'm seeing is a big no well
0: i did like the director's cut of watchmen more than the theatrical cut maybe it's a similar situation here i don't know Zack snyder is not the best storyteller he's a visual artist that creates some really striking images but his storytelling skills definitely need to improve But for what I've been watching actually at home this week, I did not lack in storytelling this week. Let me tell you, (laughs) I got to catch up on the 40-year-old classic that is Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver.
2: Oh, excellent
0: film, bro. Let me tell you something. I have watched this film more times than I think I can possibly even count at this point. I think I watch it maybe once or twice a year at least. I, I, I'm i not even sure really because Taxi Driver is the kind of film that very early on when I was really, really into films, I was, I was much younger. I was probably like in, in my teens, I'd say I was definitely probably too young to be watching this, maybe around 13 or 14 years old. Even I, I watched this film religiously. I love that Martin Square says he uses the camera to tell the story and The framing, the the movements, uh, what he chooses to put into the shot, everything has significance. You you get that feeling also when you're watching something like The Graduate by Mike Nichols. Oh, yes. Where every shot truly matters. And you can't imagine a single moment of this film being edited or trimmed down in any single way. Everything is in service to the character, which is in service to the story.
2: And Travis Bickle is one of the most fascinating characters in all of film history. Oh, I completely agree. No, Taxi Driver is definitive Scorsese. Oh,
0: absolutely! And- if
2: if I were to name you three movies that you know, I I would represent Scorsese would be Raging Bull, Goodfellas, and Taxi Driver.
0: Oh man, yeah, I would I, I would throw the Departed maybe in there as well. But in many ways, Departed shares a lot of similarities with Goodfellas. Yeah, so I'm I'm with you on that. I do think that those three are you want to get an idea of who Martin Scorsese is and what a legendary career he has had, you put on those three films. Not to mention, those three films could also stand in as the three films to define Robert De Niro's career as well. Oh, no, it, exactly. Those two worked so well together, so well, that I, I'm really upset that they have not reteamed. teamed uh, Maybe it's simply that Scorsese feels that the, uh, the cow has been milked at this point. Yeah. And in his age right now that he's at, De Niro is just probably not the actor that he once was. Maybe they've talked about it like this. Who knows? I know that DiCaprio was trying to get a project off the ground for a while between him, Scorsese, and De Niro for quite some time. But it just seems like it's probably not going to happen at this point. Yeah, but I mean, we'll always have Taxi Driver. De Niro is scarily good in this film. Oh, yeah, He is disturbing because he's so off-kilter. His mannerisms, his tics, his little pauses that he takes between sentences, words, the glances he throws, everything is just so unusual. Everyone else behaves normally in this film. All the dialogue flows very naturally. You're watching Sybil Shepherd and Albert Brooks at the uh, um, the campaign hall, uh, you know, for for Senator Palentine, yeah. and th- they have a natural, free flowing conversation. You throw Travis Bickle into the scene, it is the most awkward <laughs> scene <laughs> imaginable. Yeah. He is so so good in this. It- it's it's a performance that. Originally was so awkward to me that I initially didn't like it. But as uh, time has gone on, I've grown to just absolutely become so fascinated by it because it also is a great stand-in for how much we have to take it seriously, like the uh, um, mental illness and when someone's really um, disturbed and not even like necessarily maybe even disturbed, but if they're talking about... The things that he's talking about in this film, when he has that scene where he goes up to um, the other cab driver whose name is escaping me right now and um, yeah, he's, he says, it, yeah. yeah, he says to him, I've got some ideas, man, like some pretty bad ideas. It's like we're, we're now living in a society where if someone like talked to you like that today, uh, you would seek that person some help. Because we see the consequences in the aftermath of what that ticking time bomb ultimately represents. When somebody feels trapped in their own existence and they feel like they're meant for something bigger than what it is that they're doing. And that's how Travis Bickle feels. He feels like his life has a greater purpose, good or bad. It doesn't matter. He just feels like he's meant for something more and he's struggling to find what that is. Because he just doesn't fit into the norms of society coming off of the heels of the Vietnam War and suffering from what is clearly PTSD. Your you thoughts. just hit the
2: whole. You just hit the whole <laughs> thing on the mark. <laughs> uh,
0: well, I'm glad. I'm glad that you feel that way. I, I, I definitely had a lot to say on this film
2: because it, it just is so dense. Oh no, it's dense. It's honestly again one of the hundred best films of all time. Easily, it, it possibly has De Niro's like best moment in his entire career, which is when he's looking at the mirror and he's like, "You talking to me?" Oh yeah. And it's all improvised too, which yeah. is great. And and then you got like a, a like a smaller role for Kaitel and you know what? It's kind of great. Like Kaitel is actually fantastic in the whole movie. You don't and like for a moment there I thought is that Kaitel?
0: Yeah. He's 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 great in that scene where he's with Jodie Foster and he's like he's like you're my baby. And he's like <laughs> slow dancing <laughs> with her. Oh my gosh, it's so it's, it's actually awkward kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, it's awkward but it's really really genuinely funny exactly i find it i i do to this day kind of find it a little hysterical having harvey Keitel whisper in my ear you know you're my baby you know how much i love you (laughs) it's just it's it's great the whole film is amazing if you guys are listening to this and you have not seen taxi driver you owe yourself a cinematic present go out get the film rent it do whatever you can. Find it somehow. If it's it in somehow. a
2: theater near you, go see it. It's worth the money.
0: I've seen it on uh, the big screen. It has played here in New York, actually, a couple of different times. And it's definitely worth seeing, for sure. I think the remastered uh, 4K version, which they have on Blu-ray now, is probably the best way to see it. Yeah. Uh, so that you could see it uh, in its you know full, glorious quality. It's it's an unequivocal masterpiece. And so the other film, I, I watched two uh, this week was I actually went back and rewatched Revolutionary Road with
2: Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, that's right. Um, that was a Winslet... No, that wasn't Winslet's win, but she was she nominated for that during, uh, during so, the Oscars? So, interestingly enough,
0: she was nominated at the Golden Globes okay. for Best Actress for Revolutionary Road and Best Supporting Actress for The Reader. Early on in the night, she wins the Golden Globe for The Reader, and then, shockingly, she wins... Two awards in two different categories in the same night, winning Best Actress for Revolutionary Road.
2: That's right. Now it's all coming back to me. Fast
0: forward to the Oscars, she's nominated not in Best Supporting Actress for the Reader, but in Best Actress for the Reader, and her performance in Revolutionary Road does not. Shannon It wait, doesn't was, get nominated.
2: Oh, yeah, that's right.
0: Right. So, you'll, so the actor who actually got nominated from that was Michael Shannon. And at the time, Michael Shannon was really, really indie. I think only uh, Shotgun Stories was like the only film that I think had like come out at the time that people kind of knew him from. Um, but nobody really, he, he was not the star that he is now. And we're going to get to that later on. We're definitely going to talk about Michael Shannon uh, today. I, I got to say about Revolutionary Road is that it's a lot better than when I first saw it. I liked it a lot more. And I don't know if a lot of that had to do with Kate and Leo's chemistry, their growth as an actor and as an actress, Sam Mendes' direction in this harkens back to his work on something like *American Beauty*. It's nothing like uh, his more flashier work that he shows in the James Bond films, or in *Road to Perdition* or *Jarhead*, for that matter. And I really like this version of Sam Mendes because he lets the actors play it out like it's a stage play, and. You could tell by the way that the shots, uh, I'm sorry, not the shots, D. You could tell by the way the scenes are blocked that those theater sensibilities are really coming through for him. And I I just think he does an absolutely fantastic job of it, knocks it out of the park. There's a lot of resonant themes in the film that talk about social conformity and basically that idea of buying into the American dream, but then becoming trapped by that dream. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you got to just learn to be yourself and follow your own dreams and not. I guess what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, conform to society's expectations of what they of what you think you should be. Does
2: that make sense? Yeah, I, I can I can understand it. I I remember watching that in theaters when it came out, but I didn't remember liking it as much. Mm. Maybe maybe I'll check it out again. Like uh, maybe if it's on Blu-ray, but uh, I what I did remember liking it. it you are like correct on the whole chemistry between Leo and Winslet. Yeah. After a certain point, it does feel like Mm anti-Titanic because, you know, that was how they were like brought up together. Like when you think of like romance, a lot of people would think like, oh, Jack, you know, know, Jack and Rose for some odd reason. I don't know. They're
0: they're playing house together basically if
2: if they survived the Titanic. If they they had survived the Titanic, you know, would their love have survived? This film says no. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. More than likely the answer is going to be No. And that's kind of what I, like, what I took out of it. It was anti-Titanic for like the decade. Yeah, pretty because, much. Because it was, what, about a decade after Titanic had actually been released?
0: Yeah, about 11 years or so.
2: Yeah. So to me, it was like good timing. Yeah. But maybe I'll check it out again. It's been a while.
0: Yeah, no, and it had been a while for me as well. I definitely liked it more. I I recommend you do the same. Yeah. Well, if that wraps it up, then for everything that we've been watching pretty much at home, we're going to go right into it here. The first film on our list, actually, is Everybody Wants Some. It is the follow up from Richard Linklater, who recently gave us a a masterpiece of filmmaking, in my opinion, in Boyhood, which, in my opinion, deserved to win him Best Director and Best Picture at the Oscars. But hey, you know what? What's what set in stone is set in stone. Birdman was a good winner. I'm not you know denying it, but I think Boyhood is a masterpiece. He follows that up now with what is, I guess you could say, a sequel slash non-sequel to Boyhood, seeing as how Boyhood was 12 years of the life of a six-year-old leading up to when he's 18 and he's heading off to college. This film takes place in the 1980s and talks about a young freshman named Jake who enters college and uh, joins the baseball team as their new pitcher it also acts as a companion piece to his film days and confused which also highlighted not the 80s but the 70s so
2: now i'm kind of waiting for a trilogy of sorts here i'm waiting for like the 90s in like a yeah. decade that would be awesome um, that would be great like having a 90s version of days and confused
0: Wow, oh, man we'll be like what 20 30 years removed from the 90s so to go back and watch something like that will be fantastic But whatever the case may be here, uh, right now we've got Everybody Wants Some. This right here is that film.
1: This ain't high school, man. You're at a new level here. You have not earned teammate status yet.
0: Who the hell are you? Oh, uh, Jake. Bradford.
1: And until you do, you're nobody.
0: Excuse Yeah?
1: Yeah. Bye. I'd like to introduce you to the new guys. Two
0: rules. No booze in this house. Number two, no girls upstairs in those bedrooms. I'm seriously worried about these new guys. Oh, play a good game, man.
1: J-J-J-J. We have a little tradition welcoming the new guys.
0: Freshman batting practice!
1: Welcome to the big time, boys. Oh, my nuts! Look at what we have here. Hey, ladies. Party later tonight at the baseball houses. You should be investing this energy elsewhere. What well, nice I like the quiet guy in the backseat. Well, oh, there's nothing here. Yeah, I can see how that could get threatening. New guy coming in, getting all the ladies. That was a joke.
0: I got your joke right here. Did he just call it a joke? That's yes, what he implied. All right, so everybody wants some is starring. I hope I'm getting this right. Will Brittain, Zoe Dooch, Ryan Guzman, Tyler Hocklin, Blake Jenner, Glenn Powell, Wyatt Russell, and a slew of others. But in case if I am forgetting a few more, there's also Forrest Vickery, Temple Baker, Tanner Kalina, Austin Emilio, Justin Street, Quentin Johnson and Dora Madison Burge as Val. <laughs> so this is like uh, this is a very large cast of unknowns, essentially, yeah. and that is something that uh, you know appeals greatly to me here. But before I get into my thoughts about it, uh, Christian, I'm going to pass it off to you first. What did you think of Everybody Wants
2: Some? You know, uh, I actually thought this was funnier than Days and Confused. Oh yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot funnier, but. There's a dark undertone to the film. Mm. Uh, so what I got out of it was, um, and this is a spoiler, uh, but again, because this is a Linklater film, the term spoiler doesn't really work as much here. No, not at all. It's uh, okay. Yeah so, uh, yeah, so the end film is like uh, you see the lead actor uh, fall asleep the minute his first class starts. Yep. So to me, that was like, imagine the next four years for this kid, who like started off like um, who started off as this kid with potential and then immediately three days of partying equates to the first day of class the the most important part of college and he's probably already screwing it up.
0: hmm but what so let me ask you this question I, I'm really curious actually because I didn't get that aspect at all um, what potential are you referring to like intellectual potential?
2: i like, i think there's an intellectual potential that the main character has um he's smart enough to kind of get himself like in he was smart enough to get himself into like uh, the right sort of situations when it came to like uh like the first party mm-hmm. when uh, he went to the sound the sound i forgot what, like the the dj like the d j name was but yeah. uh and then they went back to the house and they were sleeping with the girls but he was smart enough like he was smart enough to ask his roommate first and even though he turned him down he thought oh wait the car we can just go to the car and like that'll solve all my problems mm. i know that's like a weird sort of um i know that's a weird interpretation of his potential but he's smart enough to get out of like bad situations or situations that can get him into an even worse um like state. See, I, I had a totally different reaction to this film. Um, and I, I don't mean to cut
0: you off with your thoughts. I want to hear no, a course. little bit more, but I just want to touch upon this because I think this is very interesting. Um, I didn't look at it as he was embarking now on the part of his college career where it was going to be all messed up. I, I didn't see it like that. I looked at it as the because mo- the most important thing I think in college is discovering who you are. It's about finding yourself as a person and that identity theme, which definitely carries through in this film. This is a bunch of guys. There's a lot of masculinity in this film.
2: Oh, no, it reeks of masculinity. A hundred percent.
0: I mean, there's been some articles that have also come out saying how it's like the most uh, gay film of the year pretty much, uh, <laughs> but also like not meant to be. It, it's it, it definitely has that kind of a tone to it. But at the same time, though, no, I remember being in a fraternity in college, and I remember everybody just being so macho about everything. Everything was a competition. Everything was who can get the wittiest, funniest line. And everything was just always about having fun and being reckless and enjoying the moment. And that's what this film is. It's about a bunch of friends who enjoy each other's company and are living in the moment and trying different things because ultimately they don't know
2: who they are yet.
0: Yeah. There, and you're you're seeing it too also, if you go back and rewatch the film, you'll see that the seniors behave a little bit differently than the freshmen. The juniors behave differently from the seniors, and the sophomores behave differently from them as well. Everybody is at a different stage in their own development of discovering who they are ultimately. And Jake comes in and he pretty much is like this, I guess you could say, wooden um almost like a how do I say like blank slate pretty much it was
2: a white canvas
0: exactly and so he is basically influenced by all these people around him as we are because they pretty much shaped the entire film here for us and all these different guys in the film even though I had a hard time remembering their individual names when all was said and done yeah I remembered who they all were they all have very very distinct personalities and Linklater lets it totally shine through. Now, no matter how much of the script is improvised or how much of it is written, um, th- these these actors, in my opinion, all knock it out of the park. I think they're all phenomenal here. I think that the uh, standout, actually, amongst the entire cast is uh, Glenn Powell, He's the one who has a very funny bit in the film where he talks about the uh, average size of his, you know what, two girls at parties. Yeah. He, to me, is actually probably the standout amongst the cast. Uh, I think he I has the wittiest lines and also the most humane, poignant moments for our main character. Um, I feel like I'm getting it too ahead of myself now. No, doing, no, 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 no. no you're, you're I don't want to dominate good. the conversation here. Like, what, what do you think of all this?
2: No, I agree. Glenn Powell. Honestly, did the best performance out of the entire male cast, and there are other females in the film, so I'm I'm not gonna you know sep- I'm not gonna diss them out. I'm gonna say Zoe douche. Yep. Uh, I've I feel like I'm saying that name incorrectly. It's okay. She's I she's know. great. Yeah. No. She's like she's really good in the film. Um. Actually, I don't feel like anyone was short on their performances. Everyone felt natural. Everyone did fit their personas perfectly. And. They had that link ladder vibe mm. toward like throughout the entire film uh, you sense that these are characters you could like you knew which characters you didn't really like but, like the psycho kid from Detroit
0: yeah oh my god he was insane he was
2: crazy
0: oh my gosh I was almost like why are they keeping him around and at this at a certain point I just realized oh
2: because they have no choice <laughs> no the, these are the it's the way they also describe it these are all kids who in their school, we're the top of their league, so unfortunately, mm. these characters have no choice but to stay together. That doesn't necessarily mean that they can't get to know each other, and who knows, maybe they can evolve from each other's personalities. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I'm. I, I hear you on that. It, it's it's very interesting because also too, um, <laughs> what's his name? He's uh he's Kurt Russell's son. Uh, he from Twenty Two Jump Street. Uh, Wyatt Russell. That's oh, name. there we go. Yeah. Wyatt Russell is also in this film, and he has a really hysterical scene uh, that's actually in the trailer where they're all smoking pot together, and he too has a lot of good moments in this. It's definitely a a cast of characters that bring something unique to the table, and like I said, they're all definitely carefully individualized. Through their uh w- through their little mannerisms and the way that they're written and the way that they played their characters here. Um there are a couple of times where I'm watching this and I'm saying to myself, these guys are definitely not in college. Yeah because they all look ridiculously old to be in college.
2: Oh uh, yeah, they all look like 30-year-olds.
0: Yeah, but I I'll get I get over that very, very quickly once I realize that the behaviors that are there, that camaraderie that we were speaking about, that sense of fun that these guys all have, that is what took me back. And that's what I think is Linklater's greatest achievement as a director. He has such an uncanny knack for capturing human behavior in such a way that his films don't feel like films. They feel like time capsules that you can store and would be a great, great way to showcase what the world was like during this time and how people acted and behaved. I think he achieves that remarkably with something like Boyhood, with Dave's and Confused, and now with this.
2: No, I I completely 100% agree with you. Yeah, uh, I, it was. I think the um, the tweet that you got to me uh, was the one where I said uh, Linklater had has this ability to make me feel like I was nostalgic for an era in which I wasn't even born in. Oh. That's brilliant filmmaking. Yep, and he is capable of doing that even with dazed and confused. Like I thought to myself wow, the 70s were great. Wait a minute, I was not even born in the 70s and yet still to that point, it felt like I had been, I would lived in that moment. Yeah. And that, that's, that's, that's the
0: whole part about why this is such an enjoyable experience is that I wasn't born in the 80s. I didn't grow up in the 80s. I have not even nothing, literally nothing to do with the 80s. I'm a 90s child. That's why I can't wait for Linklater to do a film on the 90s. But... What I did go through is I did go through college. I did go through uh, that period of constant partying, constant uh, sex obsessed with, uh, you know, picking up girls and constant uh, acting weird and just trying literally anything because you were just trying to, one, have fun because you kind of knew that deep down this was like the last time you were ever going to have fun and two, you were also just trying to find yourself. And it was all about trial and tribulation. And I think that this film touches upon that in a very um, human and very believable and very entertaining way. I, I absolutely love this film. Um, let's pass it off here to uh, final, final Thoughts and what grade would you give Everybody Wants
2: some. All right. Uh, final Thoughts for me. It's a very enjoyable film. It sure does reek of masculinity but it overpowers it with really well-written characters, a sense of nostalgia for an era in which I was not born in, and brilliant filmmaking. Uh, as a grade, I would give it plus. B+. B+. plus. Okay, good.
0: So – I think I've talked about this film actually to death at this point. Um, I I can't think of much more to really add to what I've said. It's 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 like a fly on the wall where you feel like you have been transported back to that time. It feels like it's fully realized. Um, it's charming. It's it's just very laid back and how assured it is. Um, it's addicting. It's lighthearted. It's lovable. It's the party that never stops, and it takes place over a three day weekend, which is the most amazing. Thing about it. You may say to yourself, how is it possible that all of this could happen over three days? Well, I can tell you as someone that went through college, it's possible. And Linklater's film here touches upon the highs and the lows of what it means to ultimately live in the moment and that who your friends are, uh, you know, and how you are with your friends, they, they may not be there forever. And You know, who you are in front of them may not be who you ultimately end up becoming, but it certainly helps you in getting there. And it's all about that journey along the way. I gave Everybody Wants Some on com four out of five stars. It is a really, really, really terrific film. I'm not going to put it beyond four stars because, you know, hey, listen, anything that gets a four, a 4.5, or a five from me, that's like, really really good. It's a contender for uh top of the year for me at this point. So, I think that's high praise enough if anybody's expecting me to give it a little bit higher than that 4 out of 5 for me on everybody wants some. Okay, so now with that film out of the way, we are actually now going to touch upon another limited release film that not many people have seen but myself and christian have and that is jeff nichols latest film midnight special starring michael shannon kirsten dunce some guy from star wars the force awakens and joel egerton <laughs> it's time you ready
1: yeah okay
2: What do you know about Alton Meyer? I
1: wouldn't know where to
0: start. He would have fits. Things would break. It was like a feeling. Kind of feeling. (gasps) We need to know where he is. You all have no clue what you're dealing with, do you? thanks sure you they're safe all right so midnight special the latest film from writer director jeff nichols christian there is a lot to unpack with this film we're going to divide it into a non-spoiler and a spoiler section non-spoilers first what did you think of midnight special
2: it's a it's a very quiet film but it's brilliant in what it uses. It's a very small film. It's marketed as a slightly bigger than what it actually is. Mm. And what I get out of it is it, if it's like kind of an ode to Spielberg in a way where if you were to mix E.T. and the Sugarland Express together as a movie, you would get Midnight Special. Um, it's also kind of another ode to like the sev- – like kind of 70s late night movies.
0: Hmm. Okay.
2: Yeah, and you got these very strong performances from everyone around. Everyone in this movie does fantastic. Uh actually doing better than what they're what they're given. I think uh Michael Shannon is just fantastic in the whole role and Joel Edgerton as well. Everyone even including Kirsten Dunst who is, has very quiet and tender moments. It's in those that actually give her character the ability to to kind of grow, and in the quiet moments, you have everybody doing their a game in this film. Sam Shepard, as well, he's given the like the brunt of the CGI, but he's able to he's able to give it the performance where it's CGI being used very well, and it does it it doesn't block me from thinking, oh, that's just CGI. No, it's Sam Shepard reacting to whatever it is that that's happening to him.
0: Okay. So definitely a quiet film, not a bombastic action film by any stretch of imagination. Definitely akin to something like close encounters of the third kind for sure. This film from the very get go, when it first starts, there's a sense of danger and mystery about it. You definitely feel that Michael Shannon and Joel Egerton are doing something. they you don't know what they're doing, but they're, they're getting this kid, this boy who's played by um, Jaden Lieberer, they're, they're getting him somewhere. And quite honestly, you think in the beginning of the film that they're kidnapping him. And you find out that he is actually a child from a a religious sect called The Ranch, which is headed by Sam Shepard. And their journey that they go on is shrouded in such ambiguity and such mystery that the enjoyment that I got from watching this film was watching that mystery unfold. Now, we're going to get into this in spoilers, but I do want to touch upon how a lot of the mystery is not... Solved in this film. So, Jeff Nichols does not provide us with easy answers here. It's actually, in many cases, no answers at all. It's really just about this special little boy who has these powers that, quite honestly, we don't really even understand. They're not really fully that explained. But that's not what's important here. The sci-fi element of this film is not important. What is important is the bond between the father and the son. The bond between Michael Shannon and this little boy is the heart, soul, and power of this film. And I think that that is where the true emotion lies. And it's also where the film gets its heft from, ultimately. So this is not your typical sci-fi film. And anybody going into this expecting something like that with... This really deep realized world and also with all these complex questions that are all answered and also not to mention sci-fi action, they're going to be left very disappointed. This is a human drama at the very core of it. And Jeff Nichols, if you've seen his other films before, that's nothing uh, surprising to you, ultimately. All of his films have had a human component to them. Take Shelter, Mud, Shotgun Stories... This he's four for four, in my opinion here. I I think that human element that he uh, puts through all the characters here is very well earned. It's very well established. And it's ultimately what makes everybody in this film very easy to root for. Even um, Adam Driver's character in this film, as he plays the uh, government official that's tasked with chasing them down in this movie, he, he too even gets his moments to shine. And I think he's great in this as well. So, I mean, w- w- what's your take on the, the mysteries not being answered? Do you think that Jeff Nichols, you know, was able to sidestep that and still
2: capture you as an audience member? No, I was completely compelled By the ambiguity of the film throughout it the secrecy behind it maybe I would have liked some clarity Mm -hmm. but in the end giving me the option to say like oh this is what I actually think is what he is this is how I feel like um, the film has brought me the um, its version of its conclusion I think that um, I think it's a lot more powerful for the film to be like we're not going to give you the answer We're going to let you decide, and we want you to continue talking about it until you've talked about it to death, Mm. but you still can talk about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. You know, one other thing that I you know, just really, really enjoy about this film, and I know we've touched upon it a couple times here, but I just got to keep hammering it at home. Michael Shannon
2: is so good. Oh, he's he's incredible in this film.
0: He has a way of playing uh, this character, Roy, in such a passionate yet reserved performance that accomplishes so much without resorting to over-dramatics. He does not do anything in this film that is something that's loud and draws attention to itself. It's a very honest performance here. And I, I, I loved it. I was so, so won over by that. And that danger that we spoke about, that that atmosphere that Nichols creates around the entire film and that mystery element to it, I think that that helps me stay engaged as a viewer. I don't know how this film will be on a second viewing now.
2: I really don't know. I was thinking about that the other day. uh, Would this film have worked if I had seen it twice? Mm. Um, And I'm thinking it's still going to work. Obviously, I have like the knowledge that the movie has given me now that I've watched it, mm-hmm. but will I be as compelled? And that's the harder question to ask. Yeah. Um, the film did give me like a great sense of sensory overload, especially when it's geared toward its ending and you, the emotional impact that it brought to me, just knocked everything out of the park. It's, better than whatever conclusion i prefer i might have preferred at the time would have wanted And yeah, you know what the most amazing thing about this is no i'm not a dad <laughs> I, I imagine you're not a dad
0: i know so it, it, like that, that's amazing to me because i can only imagine fathers
2: watching this film and what kind of an impact it'll have on them like you thinking to yourself what might, what would have my dad would have done yes what, would my dad have kept me in the ranch when he had a gone through all the hell in the world in order to bring me to whatever destination I needed to go? It's a very interesting question that you actually brought up.
0: Not to mention, it's also um, a destination that Roy himself doesn't even fully understand.
2: No, he's he's completely unbeknownst to the situation. And
0: that to me is, like I've said before, where that heart and that power lies because you got to look at it from the perspective of as a parent, you don't know how your kid's going to turn out when they're young you don't know if they're going to be good you don't know if they're going to be bad and that's how roy sees alton in this movie he he doesn't know if what he's doing is going to be good if it's going to be bad he doesn't he doesn't know anything but yet as a father and as a parent he is committed and loves him unconditionally to the end and that is so impactful i feel I think that audiences can get a lot out of this film if they open up their minds to it, honestly, and they just get over those expectations they may have. I think the film's marketing has done a good job of not illustrating um, the
2: action beats because there really aren't many. I I think actually every action beat in the film – almost every action beat in the film is actually shown in the trailer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I went
2: back and rewatched the trailer and I completely agree with you. So there's only there's only one moment in the film where uh no two moments. One is shown in the trailer but it's not completely like filled, and then the other is a uh, total it's uh it's a sense of surprise when it happens. Mm. It's uh it's it's when the two ranchers um sh- like surprise Alton and um and Roy. Yeah.
0: So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna toss it off with our final thoughts and grades before we get into spoilers here, Christian. What are your final thoughts? I'm
2: gonna give it a B. Hmm. Okay. Uh, it's it's a very quiet and tender film, sure, and everything about it gave me a great sense of sensory overload, and it give it brings me to this old fashioned sort of cinematic '70s ideal where your movie can be weird but that doesn't make it bad and you can do a lot with the little that you have
0: yes because you're right uh, he get jeff nichols has a bigger budget on this film than his previous films but it's still
2: not a lot in the grand now, scheme of things in the grand scheme of things it's a very small limited budget and it works better than 90 percent of big budgeted films
0: yeah, he is a gifted storyteller for sure. And whatever he does next, I await it with open arms. And actually, if I remember correctly, doesn't he have another film actually coming out this year?
2: Yeah, it's called Love. Uh, and it also has Michael Shannon and Joel Edgerton.
0: Oh, my God. Shannon's with in every single one of his films at this point. Yeah. That's awesome. The new, the new Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro pairing right here. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I give Midnight Special three and a half stars out of five I definitely had some uh flaws centered around those mysteries like then that's something that we're going to get to in the spoilers here um but I am won over by Shannon's performance by the power of this film and that father-son relationship Jeff Nichols um, ability as a storyteller and how he does not present anything to the audience in a clear-cut manner uh basically you know holding it out on a silver platter and saying, here you go. He lets the story unfold naturally, organically, and the character beats that are um, positioned in the film just feel very natural. So I really, really appreciate that as uh, somebody who watches quite a lot of films, honestly. And whenever too many times films are a little bit on the nose, it it gets a little annoying. Um, So Jeff Nichols, Ace director, ace writer. I can't wait to see that new film, Loving, that he puts out next. Without any further ado, let's get into some spoilers here. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You to. want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Okay, so spoilers on Midnight Special. I want to toss it off to you first uh, because there's a lot to really unpack here uh you it's more fresh in your mind you've seen it actually more recently I'd, I'd i'd like you to start us off here
2: okay so it it's uh it revolves around the ending it's and this is the spoiler uh when alton reaches his destination and you see the big giant city yeah uh what it reminded me of was uh and this is the this is the sensory overload I'm, uh, overload I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. What it reminded me of was this feeling. I wish I would have gotten out of Tomorrowland, where you see. Uh. The, I, I believe Britt Robertson. I I feel like I'm getting her name wrong. I apologize, Britt Robertson, if I do. <laughs> um, but uh, you, the minute she like sees Tomorrowland for the very first time, mm-hmm. and she enters, I wish I would have gotten that feeling that I got from Midnight Special because it gave me the sense of the possibilities are endless. Yeah. And you don't know what this is because that's part of uh, Jeff Nichols' beauty of ambiguity and secrecy. He's not telling you what this kid is. And here he's presenting you what he is. But who knows? Because it's you. You are going to be the deciding factor and you get to be like this kid is either an angel he's either an alien from a different planet or he's either a kid from an alternate universe it can be whatever but this is the but this is what Jeff Nichols is presenting you mm-hmm. and this is and this is the ultimate destination that has been brought see this this scene here i think is the scene that just pissed off people the
0: most because this giant city takes up like a third of the united states yes it's And to me, it just says, I still have no idea what this kid's powers are. I know it has something to do with the light that emits from him and that's traveling all throughout his entire body. But I have no idea what he could do with this light. Apparently, they can forge entire cities with it. So I'm not really exactly sure. (sighs) Man, I guess it's more frustration more so than anything because I wanted jeff nichols to explain more about this you wanted the answer yeah i well only because to me it's like i don't know if they had to go that extravagant then couldn't they still have kept it a little bit simpler like i would have been content with a spaceship just coming from the sky and just sucking him up honestly you didn't have to do like a whole expansive thing that later on when i catch the film on blu-ray i'm gonna pause and i'm gonna say what the hell is that that in the corner right there how is that possible how is that even working right now? Oh, I don't know. Jeff Nichols never bothered to answer.
2: Well, he we all will always have the special commentary on the Blu-ray. That's true. That's true. He, he normally does do those, I believe. So
0: th- that to me is the most frustrating aspect of this film is that we never really understand Alton's uh, powers. I, at least I didn't quite understand them. I mean, there's scenes where he looks into people's eyes and they seem like they're forever changed by what they have seen, but we don't know what they have seen. I don't even know if the film is really like, really gets at the core of touching upon that aspect of it. I think a lot of it has to do, though, with the other theme of this film, and that is faith. And how Alton is seen as like a, um, as either a threat and a danger to society, or he's seen as like a savior. Or, yeah, like a God figure. Exactly. And that's why the religious sect, the the ranch, um, treats him as such, ultimately. And so. It's a very, very interesting uh, parallel here between light versus dark. And, you know, uh, Jeff Nichols, cinematographer on this film, um, also shoots the film with a very polished look that is never too bright and is also never too dark. And it perfectly uh, illustrates that battle that is going on here. And it's also a battle that's happening between Us not fully understanding. I think us not understanding is something that plays into this film. Because the government officials in this film, uh, led by Adam Driver, they don't understand what's going on here. They don't understand this kid. And because they don't understand him and they don't understand his powers, they fear him. They fear him and they have to keep him under control. There's a scene where he's being interrogated and clearly he's the one that's in control. And he's proving to them that they have no control over him whatsoever essentially
2: I, um i just want to say uh there's a very interesting sort of like mirror mm-hmm. when to alton and superman actually oh. and, and and i'll bring up man of steel so in man of steel when he just kind of brings himself into the us government he's superman is actually in control of that conversation he's atch- he's actually like the one who sees everything he's capable of understanding who he each person is because you know, because of his superpowers in a weird way. You can say that Alton may not be Superman or may not be Kryptonian exactly, but this would definitely kind of give you a guiding force of a, he is an alien from a different planet. And that's something I picked up from this film is that, and it's also very strange because it comes out, it came out in limited a week before BVS And there's a comic of like the first Superman comic in that Alton is holding. Mm. So there's a very interesting parallel here. And I think that's something that Jeff Nichols is kind of not showing not like not deliberately showing you guys, but it's like a possibility here.
0: Yeah. It's alluding to it, man, what a good catch there. I totally forgot about the comic. That's a hundred percent correct. And, you're right in the sense that it's funny as I was describing it. That idea of um, fearing that which we can't control—that totally does play into the Superman uh, storyline and Men of Steel, that also continues
2: in Batman versus Superman. Yeah, they do it. They do it a lot better here. <laughs> well, no, no, oh, no. Actually, I, I prefer this. I prefer Midnight Special to be the one, the the better origin story of Batman. No, of, of Superman. <laughs> yeah, well, in a weird way. You have Zod in this movie. So, yeah, it's, a very, it's the better origin story of Man of Steel.
0: Could you imagine if the little kid, if this was like seen as like a prequel to like <laughs> Superman in sort of way? <laughs> I can see that. That's actually really, really funny. Uh, Michael Shannon is uh, Jor-El. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing I want to touch upon in this, actually. That's, uh, that. Oh, my God, it's amazing. The parallels are, are totally there. Letting your child go. Because there is a scene where Kirsten Dunst goes up to Michael Shannon and pretty much says to him, you know, we have to be prepared. Uh, and you don't really know what she means. And she basically says we have to be prepared to let him go if that's what it comes down to. Yeah. And it ties back into what we were talking about before about how when your child is young, you don't necessarily know if, you know, th- they're going to be a good reflection upon society. And if that's, uh, you know, going to be a signal that you've done your job as a parent. But your, your job as a parent is to ultimately raise your kid to let them go off and be on their own. Yeah. And to just continue the cycle of mankind, essentially. That is your job as a parent. Your job is to get them from a point where they are weak, they are incapable, to get them where they are able, and then essentially let them go. And this film acts as a terrific metaphor for that. Because while Alton is only eight years old in this film... He is clearly capable because he's he's not from this world. He's beyond this world. So while – I mean that's everything too. I mean
2: like is Alton really eight years old? Oh, you bring up a good point. Maybe he's like 102 or something.
0: Right? But I mean you guys to say yourself then how could that really be because he's clearly born from Kirsten Dunn's to the original parents. Um, so maybe that's a silly question but maybe maybe like on his planet – He's got like an
2: advanced, maybe he's just got an advanced mindset. Like he doesn't have the mind of an eight-year-old so much, you know? No, no, maybe like their minds progress much, like much quicker than normal human minds.
0: Bottom line is that this is open to so much interpretation here that it's, it's really, uh, and I, man, I don't know if like Nichols wants us to interpret this much. I think what he ultimately wants us to do is he wants us to focus on the human element of the
2: story. That he diverts. Us kind of figuring out this the little uh, the little quieter moments for Alton.
0: Yes, exactly. Uh, I yeah, I'm with you on that. Joel Egerton's character, you know, being the um, the cop that helps out Michael Shannon here. Did you think of it as a convenient plot device that he was a cop that? This enabled them to be able to avoid the uh, authorities, essentially.
2: Yeah, it, it felt too convenient. Like, um, like how would Roy have known a cop if he was this person, like stationed on the ranch?
0: Well, actually, it was because of that. They were they were college buddies or something, or childhood friends or something like that. Yeah,
2: they were like childhood or high school friends, and then his parents, like Roy's parents, took him away from him and brought him into the church. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was the storyline, but it did feel a little too convenient. I mean, for plot reasons, sure, why not? But it did feel too uh, too convenient to progress the story, I guess.
0: Yeah, I, I I got that sense too, because I almost wondered like if the film would have been a little bit stronger if it was just Michael Shannon and Alton on the road and Joel Egerton didn't need to be involved, because another in thing that kind of bothered me a little bit was that I didn't understand Joel Edgerton's motivations for wanting to necessarily help because we never get a clear sense of what it is that he, Alton shows him that he sees and that makes him feel so compelled to want to help but I guess that's where that blind faith comes in that religious theme of you can't see it you can't feel it you can't hear it but you believe anyway yeah
2: and and the moment she, like um the moment Joel Edgerton kind of just finally 100% accepts Alton's ability is uh, a, and this is another Superman thing uh, when Alton and Roy are in the field for the very first time uh, hiding from the US government and the sun is what brings the sun is what brings Alton like more energy or like a much healthier skin tone, skin color because mm. as you noticed uh, earlier he was mostly brought out at night so he yes. looks like he was just in miserable hell
0: well, because they're trying to conceal his powers, because ultimately the sun is what gives him his energy. So, you know, obviously you would not want this kid in broad daylight where people could see him and he's displaying this awesome power, unless if they were
2: in a very isolated area, such as this the, the field. Forest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, was, it was another, like, kind of Superman thought I had to my head, because that's something that heals Superman, or what gives him his power, is the sun. Ah. Yeah. So, yes. So... It was very interesting seeing him being in the field and regaining his strength immediately when the sun, like, sets. And then you see that shot where, like, um, where Joel Edgerton's character, Lucas, is looking at him and he's like, he's in broad daylight. It's 3 p.m. The sun is out. He's in broad daylight. Okay, this this kid is 100% for real. So to him, Blind Faith now is officially, like, out of the water as soon as that scene hits.
0: You know what scene I really, really liked in this film? Which one? Not a, I, I was just, I was just trying to like go back, and I was just trying to think of it in my mind. Actually, like uh, of scenes that we could just talk about really quick, as far as spoilers go, I love the ambush scene where uh, the two guys, the two oh, henchmen, the two, yeah. Um, and I know we talked about this a little bit before when when they like
2: raid the hotel room. That was great. Oh my gosh! Totally took me by surprise. Actually, it was you bringing up your point on the whole parent perspective. Mm -hmm. Like, if that were, again, me having a child, then I would actually react the way Michael Shannon would react, just yelling and going crazy and bonkers.
0: Yeah, yeah, because, you know, they tie him to the post. And as a parent, if your child was being taken away, uh, you know, adrenaline kicks in like to the highest you've ever possibly imagined. And you're not going to just sit there and just submit and just, you know, let it go. You're going to freak out, basically, You're until somebody comes to help you. It. You yeah. can get free. Yeah. Essentially. I mean, that that was like the scene in the film where I was like, oh, no, no, no. I thought, like, Joel Egerton was going
2: to get killed. Oh, I, I thought... I, it was weird because I was expecting him to get killed for some odd reason. Same. Yeah. And he, it didn't it, happen. Yeah, because it's that stock character that we, that we received. But then it, in the end, you know, he lives. Well, that's the thing,
0: too, is at the ending of this film where... They both flip over in the car. Um, they both survived that, first of all. And I actually thought to myself, okay, if the film is going to fail for me, this is where it's going to fail. It's going to fail in the ending. Because Alton's gone. The world just saw this freaking huge city just come out of nowhere. Now they have more questions than ever before about this whole situation. And they've got these two guys who are fugitives of the law, and they're clearly now caught. How do we get a happy ending out of this? What's what's the outcome? <laughs> In comes Adam Driver at the very end to be the one that I guess is going to be handling their
2: case? Uh, 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 I don't really know. That was kind of convenient. Yeah. I'll grant you that. That was actually rather convenient.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I mean... It's a fu- it's a funny little moment when you see like Lucas be like oh this guy this is the guy that wanted me to punch him in the face. There's a little gag where, um, where Adam Driver's character is taken f- by Alton and then he's Alton basically requests Adam, Adam Driver to deliver him to his parents. Yep. And you see, and then he, when he does that, Adam Driver goes up to Joel Edgerton and says oh, handcuffs, and do you mind punching me just so that they know that, you know, this is 100% real. I thought that was a very, like, cheeky, fun moment, but when you see that ending, it's, like, you think to yourself, wow, it's that guy that wanted me to punch him in the face.
0: Yeah, I also love, too, that, I love that he is so bought into Alton and, like, this whole mystery surrounding him that he goes up to the main characters and he says, can I come with you? <laughs> and they're like, No. And then when he says to him, can you punch me in the face, make it look like I struggled? No. (laughs) And they just leave him there. So I did find it a little convenient that he shows up at the end. And I guess
2: that implies that he's going to be like working for or with them.
0: Yeah, to like help them out, maybe get them out early or or something. I don't really know. You know, and that's that's where that little bit of the frustration lies, because I I knew that they kind of were written into a corner. Where these two characters, I wanted to see them get out okay. Because in, in the end, they did a really, really heroic thing to help this child. But at what cost? And the cost is, I guess, that they're all
2: imprisoned. <laughs> <laughs> well, except except for Kirsten Dunst.
0: Yeah, except for Kirsten Dunst. But then at the very, very end, the final shot of the film, Roy looks up at the sky and his eyes briefly glow just as Alton's did.
2: Yeah. What the hell does that mean? Does that mean that Michael Shannon is one of them? Uh, I I, I, I don't know
0: because (laughs) (laughs) you got to look at it this way. If he is the father and Kirsten Dunst is the mother and they bore this child and this child inexplicably without any backstory or any film canon knowledge whatsoever has these powers. Where did those powers come from? Where did he come from? How did like how did this all maybe it maybe the power is in Shannon all along? But what is the power?
2: Like what is what is is like light that's beaming out of like these characters? Right. We don't know. We, know. we just don't know. And that's and the
0: whole point of this film is that we're not supposed to know because just like how a parent does not know the certainty of how their child's going to turn out. Exactly.
2: What matters is just getting them there. Yeah. Now, here's a really interesting thought I had. At, um, Do you think that this movie was all in Michael Shannon's head? Because that's the end shot. Okay. Do you think that it actually never happened and this is all just Michael Shannon's imagination? I think that is a very very good interpretation because he has the the wires in his head he has like all the brain scanners and all that stuff do you think that this is a a very inception style ending
0: i think that somebody someday is going to write an analysis on this (laughs) and really really explore that um if you are listening to this and you want to embark on such a journey Please feel free to do so. Uh, just make sure you give Christian credit for giving you the idea to do so, because damn, dude, I didn't think of that at all. Man, that's that's good. I, I mean, I, I don't know if there's enough evidence there to necessarily support it, but I think the film is so ambiguous that you
2: could make a solid case for yeah, it. Yeah, like the possibility is there. It's not it's not a it's not a set in stone thing, but because you have this ending where it's him just staring into the sun and you have these wires. This is like a crazy person, possibly. And he's just like imagining like anything in his head. So this movie could totally be in Michael Shannon's head. Jeez. And I just want to say if someone out there is writing a detailed analysis of this movie and thinks me, I would also like a plate of cookies. That's, that's, <laughs> that's my final request.
0: I have one last thing, though, I have to touch upon here. This is a very, very quick thing. I completely forgot to bring up the music by David Wingo.
2: Oh, yeah. Dude, the music is great in this
0: film. That soundtrack is one of my favorite of the year so far. The theme in this film is awesome. It plays in the trailer, and I, I absolutely am in love with it. I, it. It it has helped me, actually, when I'm writing at home. It's very just calm, atmospheric music that, I don't know, it gives me... Uh, it gives me a sense of a little bit of adrenaline, but it, but in a sense like a soothing adrenaline, I guess you could say. Yeah. I love it. I, I think it's brooding, it's melodic, and it's really, really fascinating. It's probably, actually, I would say, maybe my favorite aspect of the whole film.
2: Yeah, the, the score does give a great environment to the film, even more so than it already has. Mm-hmm. And actually, this is something I noticed. A lot of a lot of movie scores are now actually finally being put on trailers. I don't know if you've noticed this. Yes. And I'm glad that they're going in this route and not using like the same old tiring, like tiresome trailer scores that appear every once in a while. Like, you know, those Oscar bait trailer scores where it's like, (laughs) and now it's like, we're getting the score of the movie and they're setting us up for what the possibility of this movie is going to be. And that's to me ballsy, because yep. this is one of the, it this is now something I'm noticing more and more often, and I'm very like happy to see happen,
0: yeah, I'm really happy about it as well, and I also like the fact that it gives us a sneak preview of um the artist's work. Ultimately, you know, if, if like James Noon Howard is doing the score to a film and I get to hear a little snippet of that in the trailer, uh, that gets me excited because I, I do love a lot of soundtracks and a lot of uh, composers and their work that they do. Uh, it, it, it's another aspect of the filmmaking craft that just fascinates me so much. With that said, though, Christian, we have reached the end of our discussions on these two films here. Where can we find you on the internet moving forward, good sir?
2: Well, I am on Twitter at, at cinephile. Uh, I'm also going to be starting a podcast with uh, two very funny individuals, Tyler Harlow and Jordan Berry. They are my comrades in film, and I hope that you guys get to hear us talk. I actually hope that, Matt, you would be a guest star in one of our podcasts, one of these, like, in one of these episodes. Awesome. And, awesome. um... I would also like to um, thank you so much for your time and for this opportunity to be on this podcast. I had a fantastic time. Cool, man.
0: Really, really glad to hear it. So that pretty much wraps up our conversation on Everybody Wants Some and Midnight Special. Stay tuned on the next Best Film Podcast as we are going to actually divert a little bit this week. We're not going to do an edition of Cinema Throwdown. We're actually going to do something radically different that has nothing to do with filmmaking whatsoever. My friend James and I are going to preview, get ready for it, get ready We are going to preview Game of Thrones Season 6 coming back to HBO on April 24th. God, I am so excited for that. And you may be wondering to yourself, but this is a film website. This is a film podcast. Why are you doing something television related? Because I love it and because it's the most cinematic thing on television today. It's my podcast. I do what I want. Thank you very much. And if you want to keep listening to that, skip right ahead. And that will be coming up next. Cannot
1: give you back your homes, or restore your dead to life. But perhaps I can give you justice in the name of our king.
0: everyone, welcome back to the Negs Best Film Podcast. I'm your host, Maddie Negs, and today we're doing something very unique, very special, never been done before, and very likely not to be done again until next year. This is a special detour. I know that this is a film website. I understand that. I know that I cover films, but right now we are going to plunge for the first time ever into the world of television. As my friend James here, he and I are going to talk about HBO's hit series, Game of Thrones, the show is expected to come back on April 24th. This is season six. And there is a lot to unpack in the recent trailer that just debuted. And there's a lot to also recap from the previous season. James and I are going to do our best to get you all caught up on where our main characters left off. And where they might be heading in this new season.
2: He's gone. world was on fire. No one could save me but... We're the only ones who matter.
1: And everything they've taken from us, we're going to take back and more. strange what
2: desire
0: will make foolish
1: people do.
0: The great victory I saw in the flames. All of it was a lie. What a wicked game you play.
2: Make me feel this way. What a wicked thing to. Every one of us is poor and powerless, yet we can overthrow an empire.
1: You're in the great game now, and the great game is terrifying. Order your man to step aside or there will be violence.
2: I choose violence. never been much of a fighter. Apologies for what you're about to see.
0: All right, James, thank you for being on the next Best Film Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you very much for having me, Matt. Alrighty, man. So, season six, a couple days from now. uh, We are in April right now. Winter is officially coming. Winter has come. Yes. So... There's a lot uh, in this new trailer. There's a lot in the uh, press materials that have been released. There's been a lot of quotes said by members of the cast. Let's break this down piece by piece here. The number one big question, and for everyone that's listening, by the way, I assume you guys know this, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Spoiler alert. Seasons one through five. Come on now. Get together if you haven't gotten uh, caught up at this point. The Wall. Jon Snow. Season five. I mean, it just ended on like the craziest of craziest notes. Jon Snow is stabbed by the brothers of the Night's Watch, orchestrated by Alistair Thorne, The final dagger being done by Ollie of all freaking people, Ollie and Jon Snow, dead, alive, coming back. What's the deal? What's your take? He's dead as the whites that they fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, I'm with you on that. Everyone's been asking all year, is he really dead? Is he not dead? Listen, people, he's dead. He There's there's no way that any man survives uh, that brutal of a stabbing. It, it's just, is he going to be brought back? I think they set it up for that uh, with the
1: way that Melisandre departs from Stannis at the end of Season 5 where she goes to the wall and if we're to believe that the God of Light has... Power beyond that of the, uh, the the seven gods or the drowned god or any other god within the Game of Thrones universe, the red god I feel is gonna be able to bring him back. If we go back to oh man, what is his name? The Bar- Barak Dundarion, Barak Dundarian season three, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. How he was able to be resurrected numerous times. However, what I think is gonna be interesting is that whenever Barak Dundarian was brought back, he lost a little bit of himself, right? So if Jon Snow is to be brought back. What is he going to lose?
0: I don't know. I mean, a lot of people have speculated, myself included, that John might be a little less honorable. He might be pissed off. He might be, you know, I, I think vengeful, you know, and taking no BS from anybody. He'll be a one cold-hearted bastard, no pun intended here. Uh, you know, I just have this feeling that, like, I mean, could you imagine how brutal—I mean, this is not out of the realm of possibility for the show, but— could you imagine a scene where he just beheads Ollie? Oh, man. Oh. A child? Yeah, exactly. Would Game of Thrones go that way? Oh, it would go that way. <laughs> Incest, I'm... rape, come on, there's not much the show won't touch. Beheading a child, though? Oh, man. And... A child that everybody kind of wants to see get it, too. That's the other thing. People hate this kid for what he did. Ah, oh, man, but is he really wrong? I mean, because... John, I think, uh, gave him a lot of leeway last season. He kept trying to tell him that siding with the Wildlings was the right thing to do. Winter was coming. There was a bigger threat there with the White Walkers. The, the Night's Watch needed to band together with the Wildlings in order to hold them off. He he tried to tell him this, but the kid just didn't listen. I think we can go back to the part, or, or
1: earlier, like season, I guess, was it season two when, or no, the end of season one when Ned is killed. Mm-hmm. And John feels this rage that he wants revenge against those who killed his father. Yes. So you can go back to Ollie, how Ollie wants that revenge no matter what people are telling him. Mm-hmm. He wants that. John luckily had, uh, oh, what was it, Grand Master... Master Eamon. Master Eamon. Yeah. Master Eamon, and he said, kill the boy, John. Let the man be born. John isn't a master, a- Master Eamon. No, of course not. Ollie doesn't have that kind of direction where he's able to kind of separate that, that rage from what needs to be done. So I can understand where Ollie's coming from, where he wants that vengeance and he sees John as that obstacle to get that vengeance that he feels he's entitled to, regardless
0: of the bigger picture. So let's ask this question then with John out of the way, the season six open with Alistair Thorne, the members of the Knights Watch that mutiny against John, and Ollie. Taking revenge against the wildlings that are stationed at Castle Black. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Wow. Do you think Tormund uh, suffers because of this? I
1: think Tormund's going to flee. I could see them going north of the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I forget whether or not they've been released south of the wall. If they've like taken...
0: Well, there's too many of them to put inside Castle Black. And so they're definitely south of the wall.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I could see them going south of the wall and kind of regrouping, maybe taking over... Castle Black launching some kind of offensive against the Night's Watch. Yeah, and they have the giant one-one with them to do it too. I yeah, mean. They, I mean they've got they've got plenty of power to do it. Uh, they've got a united hatred, which is kind of like the only thing that unites the wild the wildlings against anything. Yeah, and they don't have Stannis to contend with anymore. It's just the the ragged band band of brothers that is the Night's Watch mm-hmm. that is going to probably boil down to a civil war between them.
0: Yeah, I mean I think it'll be interesting because on one hand you have you have that scenario that could play out. You have another scenario which is Davos, Melisandra, um I guess Melisandra resurrecting John is probably something that the show has, in my opinion, also foretold. Davos though factoring into all this, I mean in my opinion, the way I conceive see this actually going is I think Davos is going to lead the charge. I think Davos is going to, like, assume command, realize there was a mutiny, and he, Dolores, and a few others, they're going to prevent John's body from being burnt, uh, which is what Alistair Thorne and his men are going to want to do, because they're going to want Melisandre to probably resurrect him, but Melisandre's going to be so distraught over what happened with Stan is that she's going to think herself a fraud. She's going to be unsure of her own abilities. She probably won't, they'll try to buy him time, her time as well, essentially, yeah. I think, by by making a stand. And that's why in the trailer, when you see Davos grab the sword and he says, apologize for what you're about to see, I think they're implying Davos is getting ready to you know, kick some ass, pretty much. I can definitely see that but my question is and it
1: escapes me but are they privy to the fact that Beric and Darren was re- was resurrected by a red priest? They're not but Melisandre what it was. But my question would then be how would they know that that that's even possible? Why would they even go to the to the extremes of defending the body if they don't
0: even know resurrection's a possibility? Davos might Uh, know this um you know it's funny this is like the type of moment where you expect Sam tarley to just be like oh the red god can resurrect don't you know this like it's like oh thanks sam for knowing everything and having the answer to all of our problems you know what that's a good point i don't know who brings that up actually as a point of contention but you know once again we're we're just speculating over here as to what direction it can all go and speaking of sam now Last we saw Sam, he had uh, left John with Gilly and uh, baby Sam, uh, who's still a baby for some reason, uh, on the show. That baby never ages. And they're actually heading to Old Town. Mm -hmm. Sam's going to become a maester. And, you know, I I don't know where... I don't know how dramatic they can make his storyline this season, except we do know that they have casted uh, members of the Tarly family. So we're going to get to actually meet... Uh, Sam's father, uh, Randall Tarley, who they actually got um, J- uh, James Faulkner uh, really? to play him. Yeah, and uh, they also have Samantha Spiro playing uh, Melissa Tarley and Freddie Stroma as Dickon and Tarley and Rebecca Benson as Tala Tarley. So we're, we're going to meet the Tarleys this season. And, you know, um, for anybody that... Uh, doesn't understand or know the Tarly's based upon the books here. Um, I'm going to just come right out and say this, that uh, James and I, we, we have both read the books, but we're at a point now where the show is diverting so much from the books, and we don't know what it's going to actually adapt at this point that's left over from A Dance of Dragons and A Feast of Crows, uh, because Winds of Winter has not come out yet basically so this is the first season where we're very much in the dark we don't know where this is going to pretty much go so i do know that randall tarley is a terrible human being uh absolutely hates sam and pretty much they alluded to in the show uh all of this because sam has said over and over that you know he doesn't pretty much particularly like his father his father is the reason why he is at the wall basically he gave him the choice of either that or death Essentially saying he was going to kill him by throwing him from his own horse and yeah. killing him. So, uh, we know that Randall Tarley's not going to be the nicest man in the world. And that will probably present some issues for Sam along his journey here.
1: That's very true. He's also a very prominent bannerman for Mace Terrell. Yes. So it's always gonna. I wonder if he'll make maybe make a journey to King's Landing and be involved in whatever happens there this season.
0: That's very true. I mean, they did say, actually, that... Um, that uh, Randall Tarly is the only commander to ever hand Stannis Baratheon his, his defeat in battle, if I remember correctly. And you allude to King's Landing here. So th- there's a ton going on at King's Landing. Uh, let, let, let's start with um, the, the most basic, uh, most important one here, Cersei. Cersei Lannister was broken down last season pretty much. Uh, It was kind of the comeuppance that we've been waiting for for this character for a couple of seasons. But what they were able to do, David Nutter, the director, and David and Dan, the creators of the show here, was they were able to get us to absolutely love that Cersei was being humiliated. She was atoning for her sins in the show. And yet, midway through her uh, walk of atonement, God, I felt sorry for her. I, I I got to the point where I felt that it was uh, too much. And a lot of it had to do with how long the scene went on for and how uncomfortable it really started to get after a while. Um, she's amazing, Lena Headey, in the show. She is amazing, playing Cersei Lannister. And I think that where we're going to find her in Season 6, possibly in a, I think in a state of uh, vengeance, revenge, as is implied at the end of Season 5, when... Kyburn presents to her uh, Sir Robert Strong as he's known in the books, but we know him as the reanimated mountain. Um, But she has a surprise coming to her in King's Landing in the form of Jaime Lannister with some bad news from Dorne. Some very bad news. Mm -hmm. Maggie the Frog prophesied in season five to Cersei that all three of her children, she would live to see all three of them die. And now at this point, two of them Gone. Only one remains, and that one happens to be the king. So, Jamie's gonna come. He's gonna tell her this. He's gonna bring back Braun, which is nice. I'm glad Braun's back for another season. And they're also gonna be bringing back with them um, the 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 the, the Dornish prince. Uh, I can't remember his name right oh, now. Oh man. Uh
1: can't believe it escapes me it's like something super simple too
0: yeah it doesn't matter in this case he's i don't think he's going to uh factor in so much this season i really really don't i don't i think the dornish are playing uh, Tristane. tristane okay gotcha i think that they're playing a longer game in the whole grand scope of the show here um but i don't expect him to play a major role but jamie coming back king's landing in tow with this bad news what do you think here it's going to go over very poorly, to say the least, <laughs> given circumstances that
1: have come and gone since his departure to uh, to Dorne. Uh, man, yeah, it's going to be really hard because you always think back to all oh, the children. They will wear crowns and they will wear shrouds. Mm-hmm. And that's what I always think about this whenever I, I see Cersei with, like, Tommen. Yeah. Like, what's going to happen? When is it going to happen? Is it going to happen as a result of her trying to protect him, I think that would be the biggest irony that that would cause it, that she would be responsible for the last death of her children.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but, man, with what's going to happen is also what's going to happen between the relationship between the Crown and Dorne. Since yeah. Dorne is technically responsible for, uh, uh, it's Marcella, right?
0: Yeah. Marcella's death. And what, what kind of repercussions are going to happen as a result of that? Well, I fully expect Alaria Sand to get her head cut off by Ariel hatta easily. Yeah. That axe was uh, shown last season. It has to get used at some point. Um, once word reaches the capital back to Dorne that Marcella did not make it back to King's Landing whole, uh Prince Doran is going to immediately know that Arya had something to do with it. Yeah. And that's it. Pretty much. I don't see a scenario where she gets out of this. You don't see that she could escape or something like that? I mean, they could always do something like that. She brings the Sand Snakes in tow with her and she goes on the run. Possibly maybe over to Daenerys, maybe. Do you know if they were casted again for season six? Yeah, they're back. So they're definitely going to have some sort of story or part to play. Absolutely. We don't know how big, though. Um, This is, once again, something that's just probably going to go maybe even off book here uh, completely, I think. And so, as a result of that, we're left in a state of flux. But getting back to Tommen, though, for a second. um, When Marjorie was imprisoned in episode 6 last season, and Tommen, they, they, they showed that he wasn't speaking to anybody, he wasn't eating, he was basically distraught that his wife is now jailed up. So, you know, Tommen, I think, could be in a state of mind where he he's very fragile almost oh, definitely i'm wondering if that could lead to possible suicide i don't know about suicide i could see him
1: doing something irrational because he talks about like i don't care how many people i have to kill to get her free mm. kind of almost jaw for like i wonder yeah. if he's going to make a rash decision and maybe do something he regrets
0: well so in the uh, season 6 <laughs> trailer we do see a shot of men uh, Lannister men uh, and tyrell men with spears aimed actually at the High Sept of Balor. So this is very interesting because we know that probably yeah. what's going to end up happening. I have a scenario in mind here. Jamie is willing to do anything for Cersei, obviously. And he's willing to do anything for Tommen. Because yeah. Tommen is now his last kid. Tommen, going to want Marjorie back. Jamie, he's going to lead an army. And he's pretty much going to go to the High Sparrow himself. And he's going to tell the High Sparrow, you let her go, you let Loras go, and we will not kill you. Straight up, pure and simple. And I think that the High Sparrow, he's got a game that he's playing here. You know, we all think that it's basically him going after people that have sinned. But I think the High Sparrow is playing something else. I really do think that he actually wants the power in the capital. He's doing what's best for the realm, as Varys would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The highest power is Varys is probably his favorite his favorite person here. But I I don't know. it's like Loris is left in a weird state as well. We don't know what's gonna happen with him. Because yeah. I mean I don't know. I don't have no idea where this is going. I just know based on what I've seen that We know that Jamie's going to lead an army. We know he's going to talk to the High Sparrow. We just don't know what the outcome's going to be.
1: Well, I think we all know what it's going to be. I think there's going to be some sort of trial by combat. Now that we have Sir Robert Strong in the picture, well, there's an ultimatum given that Cersei has to have some sort of trial. She has to be, there has to be some sort of, she has to prove her innocence. Marjorie's going to have to prove their innocence. There's got to be something going on here.
0: Right, because the Walk of Atonement was just simply kind of like a, uh, like a bailout, essentially, it wasn't. You're, it wasn't. You're off the hook. You know, you still have to go to court, essentially. Here, exactly. So, yeah, I, 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 can see that playing out. I wonder if the trial by combat will determine the lives of, maybe all of them. I don't think we're gonna get three trial by combats. I don't know about that because they're. they're it's for different crimes that they're being accused
1: of. Right. So, Marjorie right now is be is. In prison because she lied under oath essentially to protect Loris. Loris is in jail because of uh,
0: he's gay basically to gay. sum it up.
1: <laughs> uh, and uh, Cersei is in jail because she uh committed adultery and murder. Yep, accused of murder. Mm-hmm. She admits to adultery.
0: Yep, and she does not admit the uh incest. <clears throat> no, she does not. Nope, that's the one so, thing that she doesn't admit. So they're very different charges. Marjorie
1: and Loris are gonna have their own trials that they're gonna have to overcome. Cersei, on the other hand, has very grievous crimes against her. I really feel that the Sir Robert Strong character, because when Kyron gives or introduces her to Sir Robert Strong, he's she he makes a point to say that he will he will vanquish all uh, her Majesty's enemies until they're all dead.
0: Yep. So that has to come to fruition as well. I think in the season we, I think the victim of that is going to be Lancel. I think Lancel will be. Uh, Somebody that falls to the mountain for sure to just show that Cersei means business. Don't mess around with me. Don't mess around with my big guy here. And, you know, pretty much announcing to everybody that you brought you brought me down before, but you ain't going to keep me down. So. It'll be very interesting to see how this all plays out. Moving back, though, uh, around to the other parts of the realm for a minute, let's head over to Bravos and let's touch base with what's going on with Arya. Where we last left off with her, she ended Season 5 uh, being punished for essentially killing Trant, which was awesome. Freaking bloodbath, Quentin Tarantino-style awesome. And she gets blinded by... I don't even know at this point if it's Jack and Hagar. Maybe there is no Jack and Hagar. Uh, It doesn't even matter at this at this point uh, with the faceless men. It could be anything or anyone. She's gonna probably get trained more by the Waif this season, I think. Um, And for anyone that doesn't know who that is, that is essentially um, the girl that uh, Arya had a couple scenes with in season five that had the uh, blonde short hair. Who played uh, the game of faces with her? You know the whole "Who are you?" and et cetera, et cetera. She was she was kind of nasty to her, and so I think that she's going to get brutalized. She's going to get beat up. She's going to get brought down. She's going to be scared. She's gonna she's gonna have a tough time. She's gonna have to learn to use her senses essentially uh, without the use of her eyes. And this will ultimately, I think, by the end of the season, make her even more deadly than what she is now. She's going to be like Daredevil when she's done. Oh, man, that's awesome. What a great, great comparison that is, actually. But do you think this all ends with her just uh, fleeing? Do you think it ends with her killing them and then fleeing? Do you think it ends with them sending her on an assignment?
1: It, it's really hard to say because the Faceless Men, they, they're the best assassins in, in this entire universe, in
0: this Game of Thrones They world. can kill anybody.
1: Literally it, anybody. It,
0: it, it just depends on the price.
1: The price is key. Yes. Because it's all about bringing the gift of the God of Death to anyone. Mm-hmm. But only those who deserve it. Yeah. <clears throat> so, oh man, is she going to flee? I, I don't know. It's hard to say because I feel like she's nowhere strong enough to kill any of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, her draining hasn't been going on that long. So I don't know if she possesses the ability to do so. Uh, I feel like a, an assignment may be more likely. It depends on how quickly they move along her storyline has... Like, how long is she going to spend there to be able to play it a part within the story that's going on in Westeros?
0: Yeah, she, and, she definitely seems disconnected right now from all the other interconnected storylines, which is why I think an assigned assassination of somebody who either deserves it or simply it's just a plot point to get her back into Westeros. I mean... You got to look at it from a perspective of who would have a vendetta that would go to the Faceless Men and order an assassination of somebody else. You know, in my opinion, if I had to take a wild guess at something here like this, I would say Littlefinger seems like the type of person that would go to the Faceless Men, say, Tom and Baratheon, you know, this is the price for you to kill the king. I mean, just throwing ideas out there. Something
1: that I just thought of right now is that I remember that... <clears throat> do you remember who they sent to the Bank of Bravos? Mace Tyrell. Who has enough money to hire a faceless man. Mace Tyrell.
0: Mace Tyrell mm.
1: finds out what's going on in King's Landing, maybe consults a party to see if there's anything that they can do to help his plight. Kill the High Sparrow. Kill the High Sparrow, kill Tommen, get her daughter who's the rightful queen. She's now on the
0: throne of the Seven Kingdoms. Yeah, but, it, but yeah, but I don't know if Mace Tyrell is like a dark enough character established in the show to do that. They've kind of portrayed him as like a doofus, I think, too much. I mean, unless if they really do news of his daughter and uh, his um, you know his son being in, uh, being imprisoned here really shakes him and puts him into action, I could mm, that that's that's one I could see playing out here. That's definitely a tricky one for sure. Um, now you know, I said I mentioned Littlefinger before. Littlefinger is all over the place. Last we saw him, he is in King's Landing. We last saw him in uh, episode 6, I believe, talking with Lady Olenna Tyrell, making mention about the um, uh, the very special boy, which was a gift that he was going to present, and that boy turned out to be Lancel, which is what they used to basically imprison Cersei and conspire against her. Awesome uh, move there by him. He is somebody that is probably, in my opinion, the true villain of the entire series. I think that when all is said and done, when uh, Ramsay and all the other villains... And we'll get to this later. When all of them are taken care of, I think Littlefinger will be the ultimate bad guy still left standing. And he's been moving back and forth between (laughs) King's Landing and also the North. So, what's going on in the North right now? Ramsay and Roose currently have Winterfell. However, now they don't have Sansa and they don't have Theon. They recently just took out Stannis Baratheon, all of his men... Um, or whatever was left of his men after I think what was shown, I I, I, I think this, I think they defected to the Boltons, yeah. a lot of them. Because the Bolton army was way, way big uh, by the end of uh, Season 5 compared to the Stannis Baratheon army, I felt. So to me it seemed like they probably defected over to that side. I mean, be on the winning side, right? So Ramsey doesn't have Sansa, he doesn't have Theon. Roose has fat Walder, and he says that she's gonna have a baby from the way that's looking looks like it's going to be a boy. Does this push Ramsey now over the edge? Ramsey's got a lot to kind of figure out as
1: far as consolidating his power and his uh and basically who who's gonna be the heir to uh, to the Boltons because he was of course he's been a bastard up until he was legitimized by uh by ruse himself. yep. So with a new baby in the picture, he's kind of lost what kind of legitimacy he has for keeping the North as an heir to Roots when he lost Sansa. Mm-hmm. He's got he's got to he's got to figure out something to kind of keep his
0: grasp of power. Yeah, right now. Yeah, I mean I don't know what that could be other than to bring the other Northern houses underneath his rule because they did establish in season five that many members of the Northern houses are. You know, not so willing to bend a knee to someone that's not a Stark, essentially. A lot of loyal Bannermen. And so if Sansa starts making the rounds to the Northern Bannermen in Season 6, maybe even Rickon uh, comes back into the mix with Osha. And we get Rickon back. Now Sansa and Rickon might be going to the Northern Houses, rallying them together, trying to build up a resistance against the Boltons here. Uh, I think that... You know, in the trailer, we see that there is a battle taking place in what clearly looks to be the North. That Definitely uh, Bolton Bannermen involved for sure. Um, horses, arrows, the whole shebang. And th- there's a lot to touch on upon this. I mean, we've heard it said um, over and over that this is actually expected to be a bigger <laughs> battle than what we've gotten at Hardhome, Battle at the Wall. They've said that it's the biggest battle um, the biggest on-screen battle they've seen in television history. And it's going to exceed everyone's expectations. So, I think a lot of that will probably be the Bolton's last stand for the Battle of Winterfell against the Northern Houses and also, too, I think, a returning Jon Snow with the Wildlings. If we're to believe that shot that was a seen
1: in the trailer that was released for season 6. That there's a good indication that that may be possible.
0: Yeah, if you freeze frame it at exactly the right time, there is a shot uh as a horse is falling down in the trailer <clears> that if you pause at the right moment, there is a figure in the background that looks like he has Jon Snow's hair, riding a horse with uh lo- with uh Longclaw. I mean, could it be him? Maybe. I think it is. I also uh noticed in the trailer that Tormund is definitely at the battle and if Tormund's at the battle, you know it's probably because Jon's there and cuz Tormund is loyal to Jon at this point, I think as far as Tormund's allegiance goes. You know, we saw that established at Hardhome for the most part. So, I definitely think Jon Snow's coming back. I definitely think that we're getting quote-unquote The Battle of the Bastards, I think as what it's probably going to be known as. And it's going to be Jon Snow, the Northern Houses and the Wildlings taking on the Boltons. And I think the surprise element that they're not telling anybody about is I think that the uh, White Walkers are going to crash the party. Yeah, you believe that? Mm, I I don't know. It's it's sketchy because the White Walkers have to get beyond the wall. So, you know, does that all happen? Because you could see the wall, I think, in the distance from Winterfell. I'm almost positive. Let's imagine that maybe the big, big moment at the end of Episode nine. Just imagine this. The battle's raging on. It's like Braveheart. It's an on-the-ground onslaught of two huge armies. It's awesome. It's carnage. We're loving it. Jon Snow cuts off Ramsay's head or something. I mean, we're, we're just having a ball. Next thing you know, in the distance, the wall just comes rumbling down. Like a, a section of it, like Helms Deep style. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so that's how you end episode nine. Big oh shit moment. Next thing you know, you head into episode ten, the finale. White Walkers crash the party, giant ice spiders, and things we've never seen before. Things just go freaking nuts, pretty much. I mean, might be a little too much. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm fantasy booking a little too <laughs> hardcore here. I don't know, but it's one way to can all plan plan out. I think that uh, <laughs> Sansa though. Being on the run with Dion is very interesting. Last we saw them, they were jumping from the wall at Winterfell. Pretty hot jump, actually. Yeah. Unless they landed in a huge pile of snow um, that was not ice. They could either be injured or maybe just very, very slow on the run for Ramsay and his dogs now as we head into Season 6 here. They run into Brienne? Oh,
1: man. Uh, I guess they, they, they may have... They may have to, at some point, Brienne's right there, we know. She's right outside Winterfell. She kills Stannis. So she has to be in the general vicinity when they're escaping, because they literally just jump the wall and run for it. So I can't imagine that Brienne wouldn't run into them, because at that point, then what does Brienne do? What is her, what is her story?
0: So my <clears throat> prediction here is Sansa and Theon are on the run. Uh, Ramsey's men, not Ramsey himself, but R- Ramsey's men and uh, his dogs chasing after them. They catch up to the both of them. Theon decides to stay behind and get cap- get recaptured and let Sansa go. It's a heroic move for, on Theon's part at this point. Sansa goes, goes on. And Theon gets saved by Brienne. So Brienne is still not up to Sansa just yet. She, says she hasn't caught her yet. She gets uh, uh, caught up with Dion. Now we don't know where Sansa is, and Brienne's still looking for her at this point. So, it, it, you know, it could go either way. I, I suppose he, she could find both of them. She might just find Dion. I don't see a scenario where she only finds Sansa and not Dion. I would agree with that because I don't. I don't see Dion joining
1: up with Sansa to kind of to, to help with her story of uniting the Northern houses. I feel like he has a role to play in other things, specifically what's going to happen in the Iron
0: Islands this season. Yes, we do know from uh, <laughs> casting that the um, the role of Euron Greyjoy, which is a popular role in the books, has been uh, cast for Season 6. That is going to be played by, I am going to butcher this, so please somebody mm. correct me, Pillow asbach. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. He, I mean, yeah, no. I just I just can't do it. He's a Danish actor. I mean, it took me a long time to get Nikolai Waldo down, for crying out loud. But we know Balan Greyjoy is coming back. We know Yara Greyjoy is coming back this season. So the Greyjoys is definitely going to have a, a role to play. Euron Greyjoy, I think, is going to be a new character this season that I think audiences are going to like. I, I think audiences are going to love Euron Greyjoy. I hope. We'll we'll see, and I do think that Dion's journey this season will take him back to his uh, his house essentially. What role do they have to play in all this stuff? Uh, it's tough to say. Very very tough to say. I don't want to get into what they do in the books because, quite honestly, it it, it could just be so radically different at this point. Oh yeah, uh, they could go in so many different directions. We'll have to just take a wait and see scenario. Keeping tied into beyond the wall uh, here with the White Walkers. <clears throat> Bran, haven't seen him for a whole season. It's been a long time. Last time we saw him, he had finally made it
1: to the Three eyed Crow. His whole journey from uh, from south of the wall, beyond the wall, uh, with Mira and what was her her brother's name? Jojen. Jojen, Mira and Jojen, <clears throat> where he's gonna finally learn how to master his green his green seer abilities.
0: Yep, which we it has been implied that in the off season of, you know, during season five, especially that he's already done that. So when we catch up to him in season six, he will have had these abilities pretty much mastered. I believe at this point, maybe not fully. Uh, Cause we know that the three eyed Raven was recast this season. We, uh, legendary actor, Max von Cedar is actually playing him, which should be awesome to see. And so we know that the three eyed Raven can't be necessarily done with brand. So there's gotta be uh some more of an element there for him. But ultimately, Brand's going to be able to probably see into the past. He might even be able to see glimpses of the future like Jojen was able to see. And I also believe that his warring abilities are going to be much more on point oh, yeah. for sure. He'll definitely have control over a lot more. And also, too, probably abilities that we haven't even thought of, I would say. They're going to be shocking for sure. The guys are going to be a full-fledged wizard by the time all of a and done. I agree. He's got some sort of projection ability that he's gonna be
1: able to do because we see in the trailer of season six where he ends up encountering the Night King in some sort of vision.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the big the big oh crap moment of the trailer was when he turns and he sees him. Maybe the Night King has the ability to communicate with him through the visions. Maybe they they have that power as well. That's another thing that we don't know so much about the White Walkers yet in the show. We know very, very little. We know that they take Craster's babies beyond the wall. We know that they were turning them into uh, White Walkers as well as the eyes turn blue. We know that whites uh, get resurrected from the dead. They can be killed with fire. But the White Walkers, we just got confirmation during Hard Home last season, they can get killed with Valerian Steel. That's true.
1: We also know uh, I'm not sure if this is important, but they also have some sort of kingdom or castle. Because mm-hmm. in that scene where they bring Craster's baby beyond the wall, we see like some sort of like ice structure. Yeah. Where they're turned there. Yeah. They have some sort of society.
0: Yeah, and what does this society want? Is it something where, like, they – is it really just pure destruction? And if so, for what – to what purpose? To what ends and what means is it? I think that there's a lot left to explore beyond the wall here. And it'll definitely be very, very uh, interesting to see. Oh, and before I forget – Hordor. Hordor. The Hordor drinking game is coming back for season six. I can't wait. So excited for that. And then, last but not least, in touching base again with all of our characters, we come to Essos, Marine. Oh, God. I know. I know. Bear with me. We're we're, we're getting there. So, last we left off in Marine, uh, Danny had made a grand escape with Drogon. Uh, from the from the pit from the fighting pits, she ends up in the middle of pretty much nowhere uh, for the most part, and gets captured by the Dothraki, who we haven't seen actually in quite a long time. So they're reintroduced back into the story. She leaves a ring on the field, uh, presumably to be found by Jorah and Dario, which we uh, later found out in the trailer is confirmed. Yeah. So they are actually pursuing her. They're hot on her heels, essentially, and. We don't know what's gonna happen with the daraki storyline I bet I think it's an inevitable conclusion is that she has to recruit some of them to her to her side at some point do you think that they find out that she's calleddrogo's uh widow I think she definitely tells them to buy you know her life at least I'm yeah. sure but they're still not going to treat her well because they bring into what what is it called dressrek uh
1: vaststoff uh, vast so yeah. I wonder if they're gonna probably bring her there because they uh they bring her to be one of the uh the old queens that are okay. like there, yeah, and again, I feel like that's the original intention to bring her there, but then she's able to
0: recruit somebody to her, to her, I guess, to her khalasar, mm-hmm. you want to call it. Sure, uh, I mean, you know, Tyrion and Varys are left over marine. They are left with Grey Worm and Masende to essentially sort out the unsortable here. They are left with a political situation that is beyond chaotic. I believe. And as good as Tyrion is, I think that he is uh, set up to fail here. I think that it's an unwinnable situation to control this city. And so the way I conceive see this whole scenario playing out is Tyrion and Varys do the best they can to to control the city. They can't control the city. And so what ends up happening is Danny, Jorah, Dario, and Adolf Raki come back to Marine and when they come back Tyrion and Varys have just lost control of the city. It is in chaos, it is in ruins. They salvage what they can as far as their men and their resources go. She's got the Dothraki army and they all just look at each other and they all go. Well, it didn't work out for us here. We might as well go. We might as well go, right? And maybe it, season 6 ends with Danny finally getting on a ship and going to Westeros. But now you introduce a central drama to the proceedings because Tyrion just proves that he can't be an effective leader. If he failed in Marine. So Danny obviously wants to conquer the Seven Kingdoms. And that could cause some friction between the two. I know I'm you know, obviously thinking pretty far ahead. And one thing has to lead to another for all this to occur. But I just don't see a scenario where they ha- stay in Marine for another season. I think that this has to be the season where they have to get out of there.
1: It, it can't overstay its welcome. Yeah, I agree. They're, they're, I don't see them steadying the ship. Mm-hmm. Or riding the ship in uh in marine. There's so much going on. The free cities are all after them. It's it's a huge huge undertaking that uh, Tyrion would have to take over. And we've already learned that uh, people in Essos are not very kind to outsiders, especially people who don't get the culture. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. They they got to get out of there at some point. I could see them maybe holding on because we still have to contend with the sons of the harpy. That's gonna be something that uh, Tyrion's gonna have to deal with. Uh, not to mention the dragons that are left behind. Two of them. Two of them are left behind.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, so the only reason why I can see Tyrion wanting to get the dragons free is if the chaos has become so uncontrollable that there's nothing left for them to do but to actually get them out. And to to what ends though? Like, they're they're uncontrollable. They're going to release them and they're going to just burn people. And we're going to hope that. Like what? You know, I don't. I don't see why they would have to unleash the dragons. What? What compelling reason is there to make them want to do it? By who?
1: Do you mean like Tyrion releasing them or someone else?
0: Yeah, because in the trailer, there's a shot of Tyrion in the dragon uh, uh, underground lair, whatever you want to call it. Because um, you can see Varys standing on the stairs in the background, and he's got the torch, and he looks. And it, Tyrion's definitely under there, so. I don't know like, if there's a compelling reason that would make them want to release them.
1: I don't know if that so much indicates that he wants to release them, but we do know that he's fascinated by dragons. Yep. We learn as much when we see that shot of him in Old Valyria
2: mm-hmm. with
1: Jorah, and he sees the dragon fly over. I think it's more just experience what they are, but he's going to have to figure out what to do with them because he can't leave them alone. Hmm. There, that's another problem he's got to deal with. I mean, on the flip side, maybe he's able to write this shit. Maybe something happens or Varys has some sort of control that we don't know about in Essos that yeah. he's able to kind of do what he did in Westeros and kind of get his little birds
0: to get into a into a row. Yeah. You know, that's you know, part of it, too, is what role does Varys have to play in all this and what reach does he have in Marine as far as his little birds go and how that can aid them over there. There's, there's a lot of factors... Um, Hear me out on this, too. You know, just getting to the end here in our discussion now. There's the possibility of other returning characters. We already discussed Rickon. We discussed Osha. We discussed the Greyjoys. Uh, we've heard that it's possible that uh, Sir Walter Frey, uh, infamous from The Red Wedding, uh, may be coming back this season. So, you know, that there's uh, other possibilities to go with that. There is a very, very heavy, heavy rumor that The Hound is coming back this season. And that the hound is not dead, as was presumed at the end of season four. And that gets us into my favorite, favorite hype. Hype hype hype, the hype theory. Is real. Oh my god, this is it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the biggest theory of all time. James, explain it to them.
1: What we what we're alluding to is Clagane Bowl. Get hype! Get hype is real. <clears throat> so what is alluded to is uh that Sandor Clegane... Is not dead. Uh, there was a casting uh, for season six for Ian McShane. Yep, that he's going to playing a character from the book, which is this this knight warrior turned uh, peaceful kind of hippie guy. Yep. as he says in an interview. And there's an allusion too that he makes in an interview that a character is going to come back that everybody thinks is dead, but is not. So a theory that is very popular on the internet is Cleganebowl, which is going to be the Hound, who is not dead, who has turned a new leaf, turned a new cloak, is going to come back as a pacifist, who is going to fight for the uh, the faith militant, for the faith militant to fight uh, Sir Robert Strong, in what is going to be known as Cleganebowl, which is going to be the fight. For Cersei's life in the fight for the Faith Militians. It's going to be the trial by combat. Oh, I am so excited, Matt. I cannot wait for this.
0: I will be forever, forever upset if I do not get this in my life. Because the Hound versus the Mountain is something that is very popular amongst book fans. And it is popular amongst uh, some show fans that wanted to see them do battle with each other uh, since season one, when the two characters were first introduced in the show. Because they're just two big guys with brotherly history behind them. One character we absolutely like, one character we absolutely hate, and this storyline makes perfect sense to tie them all into each other. Ian McShane's casting, I think, is what proves it altogether. Because in the books, Brienne goes through The Quiet Isle, and she encounters a priest who talks about Sander Clegane and how um, he essentially died of his wounds. And now there is this like grave digger at the Quiet Isle who is burying the bodies for him. And he has the exact same uh, build as the Hound. And, and many book readers suspect that this actually is the Hound. And that when he says that uh, Sandra Clegane uh, was killed, he means basically in the sense that he was reborn essentially. Uh, that, like James said, he turned over a new leaf. He is a man uh, that is now of a higher faith and believes in the faith militant. This is why everyone believes that the faith militant will call upon um, this man, uh, possibly Ian McShane, uh, to get you know, Sandor to fight for them. Because when you really think about it, there's nobody in King's Landing that's an established character that would fight on their side against Cersei. Not Loras, not Jamie, Braun. Like, there's nobody. Nobody that we
1: know of yet.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, there's always someone that could be introduced. So, you know, you have to look at it from the perspective of if this casting is correct and if Ian McShane's comments are correct. And everyone wants to think it's alluding to Jon Snow, but I really do believe that they left it ambiguous enough in the show with the Hound and Arya leaving him that unless you see the character die, he's not really dead. Stannis excluded. We know that Stannis is dead, unfortunately. Dead. Uh, it, it w- mm, Yeah. The one true king. What is dead may never die. Stannis de Manis. Oh, God. So, in this particular case, though, I do believe that the Hound is alive. I think enough time has passed now after um, a season and what will presumably be maybe even <coughs> a half a season of this where we'll get the Hound. Uh, he will come back into the show. Maybe they won't do Clegane Bowl this season. Maybe it will be set up for our next season. But in any event, even if this is something that the books, even if this is something that George R. R. Martin is never going to do in the books, David and Dan have said that they are diverging and they are doing pretty much their own thing at this point while keeping some of the basic plot points the same. This could just be total fan service.
1: I agree. I mean, everything you said, it seems pretty accurate to me as far as it just makes sense.
0: It does. There's so many factors that lead to it and making it believable that, like I said, I will forever be disappointed if it doesn't follow through on it and it doesn't actually end up happening. I'm going to uh, end this discussion now, though, because we have talked about Season 6 and our upcoming excitement for it to death, but I'm going to uh, leave it off with a couple of choice quotes from some members of the cast about Season 6. This one comes from Amelia Clark. She said, This season, it's just go, 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 go. Shocking moments, a shocking moment, Epic moment to epic moment. It's mental. It is epic. Liam Cunningham, who plays Davos, this is going to be a tough season to watch. And when is it not ever on Game of Thrones? And then Sophie Turner said that so many characters' paths intertwined this season, alluding to how if you thought in season five Tyrion and Danny meeting up, um, you figure you had um, you know Sansa going over to Winterfell meeting up with Ramsay. There were a lot of like intersecting storylines last season. Supposedly, we're going to be getting even more of that. In episode one, Liam Cunningham has said, listen, there are going to be many stunning scenes in season six, and there are from the get-go, I guarantee it. You're going to have at least one rather very large one in episode one, but that's all I'm going to tell you. And then I'm going to leave it off with this one here. This is uh, from David and Dan, the uh, creators of the show. They say, Dan and I talk about this a lot. This is us not trying to hype the season. Usually there's an episode or two we're kind of nervous about that didn't turn out as well as we hoped. This season, there is not a weak episode. We had great directors who knew what they were doing paired with excellent directors of photography. We thought at the script stage it might be our strongest season. Then the episodes started to come in and they came in better than we hoped. We're always reluctant to say that it's the best season yet because so much of that is in the eyes of the beholder. And Dan and I are so close to it that it's impossible to be unbiased. But that's my sense. Watching all these episodes together now, this is the best one we've done. It's also the one I'm proudest of because it was the hardest. So that point right there where he says that it was the hardest. I'm very confident that without a existing book to adapt from and having to rely on George and his notes and... Probably the complexities of just a higher budget. We know that the budget for season six is a hundred million dollars, That's ten million dollars an episode. And to put it in comparison, season two, six million dollars an episode. Huge difference. So we know that they have a lot more resources. We know that the battle scene uh, that is going to happen in episode nine this year. We know it's larger than anything they've ever done before. And we also know that there's got clearly a lot of characters this season. Oh, yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how they can juggle it all, but after five really, really tremendous seasons of gripping, gripping dramatic television, I have no doubt that we're in for quite a ride. James, I want to thank you for talking about this with me. We are going to uh, actually be doing season six recaps all throughout this season, so we will be back for that. Um, until then, though, I am Maddie Megs, and this is the Meg's Best Film Podcast. See you next time. Are you not entertained? How about you? Are you not I entertained? Don't this don't is the you. night you're you you? Good day, sir.
1: Step into the world of power, loyalty.